Well, if you could uh, find your seats and open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read the first three verses here in just a moment. Last time I was with you, I think uh, was about a month ago. And uh, I spoke to you from Romans chapter 8 and I talked a little bit about the, uh, the doctrine of adoption. And uh, so I'm going to carry a little further on that topic this morning. And uh, we'll begin reading at 1 John chapter 3, the first three verses. And John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we ask you to open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold great and wondrous things out of your word. Please transform us by the Holy Spirit as he brings the word of God to bear upon our hearts, our wills, our consciences. Encourage us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's nice to be with you. It's always a joy to come up here. Many years ago, as I was scanning the Sunday newspaper, do they still have Sunday newspapers? They do? Okay. Well, this was a long time ago, back when there were dial telephones. Kids, ask your parents what those are. They might remember. But it was a long time ago, and I was just kind of breezing through the Sunday newspaper in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That's where we were at the time. And I came across an advertisement for an adoption agency. And uh, it was a picture of a woman with a very sweet countenance, and seated on her lap was a little boy, maybe three or four years old, and he was looking up into her eyes, and the caption underneath read, Mommy, tell me again the story how I came to be your little boy. Well, the combination of that picture and those words so affected me that tears just welled up in my eyes and I cut that little ad out of the paper and I put it in my dresser drawer and from time to time I'd take it out and and look at it. Well, uh, through the years and the many, many house moves that we've made, somehow that clipping was lost. But you know, I've never forgotten it and it still affects me. That little face and those words, Mommy, tell me again the story 
how I came to be your little boy. Every adoption is a story, isn't it? It's a love story. I mean, there's something about a vulnerable little person and something about a love that's so powerful in the heart of an adoptive parent going out to a child that he or she doesn't really even know. And I think the reason that it so affects me is because it probably reflects on an earthly basis as purely as anything could the gracious love that our Heavenly Father has for us. It's entirely gratuitous. I have seen many people uh, in our church, uh, both in Lancaster and at Covenant Life Church, and no doubt it's true here also, many people who have laid out many thousands of dollars and gone through many hours of evaluations and traveled many miles, in some cases, to other parts of the world just so they could express the love in their hearts for a little person that they don't even know. And as a result, change that child's life forever. I mean, is that powerful or what? I mean, it's still just, it just affects me to think about it. Well, that's what adoption is. That's what adoption is. The word itself is, by the way, is not mentioned in the, in the text that we read. Um, but adoption is a theological doctrine. It's a, a theological category with such tremendous significance for us. And it's a little different when we're talking about God and, you know, I, I realize that, but but I want to talk to you about it today, and I just thought I'd use that as an entree to open up this area a little bit more, which I hope will be for your benefit. I believe it will be. Anyway, adoption is the act by which God makes us members of his family and whereby he becomes our father. That, that's really what it is. It's the act of God whereby we become members of his family and he becomes our father. It's actually very closely related to the doctrines of regeneration and justification. Uh, and, you know, look, I, I just want to uh, make a little disclaimer here. I'm a, uh, I'm a pastor, but I love theology because theology helps me understand who God is. That's why I love it. Okay, And, and I want to just say a word in defense of theology. Theology, in a very simple way, is simply reflection upon Scripture. When you reflect upon Scripture and think about what it says and try to put it together with other passages and try to somehow harmonize them, you are doing theology. If you're doing it well, it's going to reveal more of who God is. We have a faith that requires us to love God with our minds. 
And because we love God with our minds, and our minds affect our emotions, you can't really love who you don't know. That's why we do this sort of thing. So I make no apology for being somewhat of a doctrinal preacher, but, but all of this doctrine has to come out of the Bible or else it's useless. All right, well, here's the thing about adoption. I said it's closely related to other doctrines like regeneration. Regeneration is what we mean by being born again, okay? And when we're born again or regenerated, that's God breathing new life into us because spiritually we're dead and we can't do anything for ourselves. We can't born ourselves again. It has to happen to us. And any per person that's a Christian is a Christian because he's or she is born again. When that happens, we go from death to life. We come alive. And when we come alive, we are born again. Well, how does that happen? I don't really know. It's the Holy Spirit's work. And the Spirit, like the wind, blows where it will. And you hear the sound thereof, and you can see its effects, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So it is of those who are born of the Spirit. And that's what Jesus told Nicodemus that night. When you are regenerated, you are born again as a result of an effective call of God that brings you from life to death just as surely as the word of Jesus called Lazarus out of that grave. That's happened to each of us who are Christians. Spiritually speaking, we've gone from spiritual death to spiritual life because we've been born again by an act of the Spirit of God. We've been regenerated. When that happens, whoa, we're alive. And the very first thing we do is believe and repent. That's called conversion. And we start following Jesus. Now, as I've said this, and as you try to think back on your own experience, it can get a little bit muddled. This is what the Bible says has happened, although our experience of it might seem a little bit different because unlike when we're born physically the first time, which each one of you were, by the way. Did you know that? Okay. But what do you remember about that? I mean, you know you're alive. But you know you, you were born because you're sitting here, but... As to exactly what happened, you really weren't cognizant. It was something that happened to you. You came to life. Well, spiritually speaking, we think we know what happened. Well, yes, I searched for God and I found him. And now I'm, well, sort of, maybe. But the Bible really says nobody seeks for God. It was his work drawing you. Yeah, you responded to it, but he was the one that took the initiative. That's what we're saying when we're talking about regeneration. He took the initiative. He called you. He used means, of course, but then you were regenerated. Well, that's regeneration. Adoption is also related closely to justification. Justification is another doctrine. And in justification, God forgives our sins. He declares us to be righteous. And he gives us a brand new status. We are no longer under condemnation but we are now fully accepted by God. And nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus because we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because of that, we stand before God fully accepted. It's really, the justifying decree is really 
the decision of the judge at the last day, the day of judgment, brought down into the presence, pronounced upon us right here and now, so that we are right with God. He declares us to be so and always will be. That's why the Christian doesn't have to worry about the day of judgment. Christ already went to that day of judgment and suffered the penalty we deserved for us. And then the justifying decree made us right in God's sight here and now through our faith. So we come to life, we're regenerated, we're justified by grace through faith, a faith that God gave us, a grace that God gave us. It's a justification He gave us. And now I'm right with God because of what Jesus did. It's all on the basis of the cross. Well, how does adoption fit into this? Well, adoption is actually a part of that justification. This is what happens. I'm in the courtroom of God's justice, and I'm condemned. And then another takes my place as a substitute and says to the judge, I will suffer the penalty that Robin deserves. And, of course, that's Jesus. And the judge says, on the basis of this substitutionary sacrifice, I decree that you are no longer condemned, but you are now right in the sight of the law of the judge of all the universe. That's justification. But the judge comes down from the bench, takes off his judicial robes, gathers me up in his arms and takes me from the courtroom into the family room. He takes me into his very home. He makes me his child. You know, if you've been condemned and you get acquitted, I mean, you're just standing there. I'm glad I'm free. I'm not going to die now, but it's still pretty cold. It's a courtroom. God doesn't leave us simply justified. He makes us his children. So that's adoption. That's a high privilege. We're not just forgiven. We're made children of God and he becomes our father. It's a high privilege. There's no higher privilege to be one of God's own children. Well, John's writing this letter to believers, probably in Ephesus and at the end of the first century. And John is trying to combat certain errors that were troubling the church. And at the same time, he wanted to help the Christians there who were struggling with assurance. They were wondering, am I really saved? Are my sins truly forgiven? Am I going to heaven? That's why in chapter 5, verse 11, you get actually the purpose of the letter as John understood his writing, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. See, the great thing is to have eternal life. But sometimes we can struggle knowing whether we have it or not. We can struggle with assurance. And that's a horrible way to live. That's why Peter said we ought to be all the more diligent to make our calling and election sure. And we do that basically by living lives of loving obedience to God. Well, anyway, throughout this letter, uh, John is pointing out ways by which we can know, have assurance that we have eternal life. Things like believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came in the flesh. 
uh, things like loving brothers and sisters, things like obeying the commands of God. You see those things sprinkled out. I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. If you're doing them, it helps. It helps you with assurance. Uh, Anyway, in the midst of all this, in this letter, John has something to say here. He's talking about adoption. And he says some things. There are four truths about adoption that come out in this brief passage. And I'd like to just briefly touch on them. This won't be a very long message. But I I I think this is very, very important. The, The first truth about adoption is that it is a wonderful privilege. A wonderful privilege. Look at those words again in the first verse. See what kind of love the Father has given us. See, or some of the older versions say, behold. Uh, It's an imperative, and it's a very strong word. And maybe to fill out the words a little bit, John is saying, behold, or see, or consider, or take a good, close look at the kind of love, the manner of love, the really unusual foreign kind of love that the Father has given, has bestowed upon us, has lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Think about it. Consider it. In the NIV translation, if you have that, the translators use some exclamation points. Uh, and I think they've got it right on that. This is a big deal. It's one of those things you can kind of read over, but it's a a big, big deal. There's no higher privilege. There's no greater thing. And the way that John presents it, it's clearly to him something amazing, something so astounding that it makes him stare in wonder. And when you think about John saying that, you've got to realize John had seen some wonders. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was there when the water was turned to wine. John was there when the winds and the waves were stilled and the, uh, the, the disciples said, behold, what manner of man is this? Uh, John was there on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before his eyes and John was there on the Isle of Patmos when he saw the Lord himself in transfigured glory, eyes like a flame of fire, the white hair, the white beard, the beard, the, the, the feet that looked like burnished bronze, the, the voice of many waters. Just think of standing before Niagara Falls. You know how, how tremendous the roar of that. And he, he saw all this. And he's saying, behold, <laughs> this It's amazing. John had lived, Spurgeon said, among some wonders. His life from the time of his conversion was a life of wonders. Not only what he saw with his natural eye, but in all the sights that the Lord gave him to see with his spiritual eye. And when John says, behold, see what manner of love, well, then you got to think, wow. You know, John was not blasé. You know what I mean by that? That's a great word. We don't use it anymore. Blase. Blase. I remember I was 12 years old and my uh, father uh, had uh, friends at work and he, the friends came over to spend the Saturday with us and uh, they had another, they had a 12 year old son. And so I was trying to, you know, 
be hospitable and entertain him and say, hey, you want to see my turtle? I've seen turtles before. Oh, okay. Uh, you want to do this? No. Uh, and and this guy, I I didn't I didn't quite know what to make of this. I was trying to be friendly, and he was, Bleh. and I I said to my parents, I don't, and they said, and they said, he was very blasé, wasn't he? First time I'd ever heard the word. Great word. Great word, but it's not something you want to be. Blasé. Well, are you blasé about some of the things? John was not blasé about this. This is a big deal. Blasé is the opposite of what we're talking about here. When he says, behold, see, look, stare, and be amazed. It's amazing. Wow. Stop and consider. And I ask you, but are you not amazed to be called a child of God? Well, I admit to my shame that all too often I am not. I'm not ashamed. I'm not. I'm not amazed. Rather, I'm not really affected. And I was thinking about that. Why is why is that the case? I'm not. Yeah, I'm not really a blasé guy. But I think I think what I am is is ignorant and guilty of not reflecting much about it. And that's that's probably the the biggest reason why I think most of us walk around like mere men and women and not cognizant of the fact that we're actually children of God. <laughs> and to be a child of God means to be an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. I mean, there's, there's stuff that comes along with being a child of God. It means you're actually heir to the entire universe. Everything that God has, everything that Christ has, you have. Now, he doesn't give it to you all at once because that would ruin you. Okay, he gives you just enough. He gives you just what you need. Right. We make out a will and we've got, you know, we've got some wealth. Imagine if we just gave to our grandchildren thousands and thousands of dollars right now. It would ruin them. Get what you want to get. So the six year old gets a shotgun or something, you know. You've got to be very careful with this. But we are heirs of the world. We're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We have everything. We have everything we need. And your Heavenly Father knows the things that you need. He just is very wise in the way he doles it out. Because it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. Okay? But we don't live like that. And we often take for granted what we do have and aren't very thankful to God as a father. It's similar to how we take our parents for granted. Every kid that grows up and then starts to have his own kids knows what I'm talking about. When you're little and parents put the food on the table and they start to train their children to say, thank you, mommy, for making dinner. They have to be trained to that because otherwise they'll just think, but cooks the meal, it's, that's her job, of course she does it. We have to be trained to understand these things don't just happen, right? Well, we've got to train ourselves to see who God is and what he's done for us. By our own nature, apart from the grace of God, we are not thankful. We are actually, by nature, enemies of God. We're ungrateful and unholy and all of these kinds of things. Uh, but I'm not 
going to talk to us about how bad we are apart from Christ. I just want to say, as a matter of fact, that we are, for the most part, ignorant and fail to reflect on how wonderful God is to be our Father and our place as His children. But one good thing that happens with age, as you get older and older, you reflect more and more on these things, and you actually become more grateful. If you don't, you will become an old person who complains. And if you are an old person who complains, you should get ready to be lonely. Because, and you'll wonder, you'll start complaining, why don't people come and visit me? Well, it's because you're always complaining. Don't do that. Instead, be thankful. This is what you should do. You should stop and think about all of the blessings that God has given you, and you should thank him specifically for them. And as you do this, you will become more and more aware of the wonders of being a child of God and having God as your father. So it is a wonderful blessing. Secondly, To be a child of God, to be adopted by God, to have God as your father is a present reality. Now, it's both present and future. And I mentioned this the last time I was here. But in verses 1 and 2, again, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. John makes it clear that it's not something that will just happen in the future. We are, at this time, at this very moment, you and I, who are Christians, are God's children. At this very moment, God is your Father. And as such, He cares for us now. Now, perhaps it doesn't always seem that way, but it is true. His personal, sovereign, benevolent care... And love makes it so nothing can possibly happen to you or me outside of his perfect will. That's great. To know that really gives us assurance. God's providential care is all around us. So this is what fathers do. They show their love by caring for us. Now just a a little uh, caveat here. Whenever we talk about God being a father, there are always going to be a number of people who had an earthly father that failed so badly that thinking about God as father is actually painful. Uh, I've had some folks tell me as a result they do not even wish to think of God as a father. They cannot bring themselves to do it because their own father has failed so badly, sometimes in tragic ways. But interestingly, they must still have some conception of what true and gracious fatherhood is, or else they wouldn't see their own situation as so tragically deficient. The fact is, all earthly fathers fall short, because all earthly fathers are sinners. To varying degrees, we all fail. But in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul makes it clear that every fatherhood owes its existence and its name from God the Father. He's the fount and origin of all fatherhood. So regardless of your experience, there is an all-good and an all-gracious father. So we have to learn what Scripture has to say about him and then allow the truth of God's Word to define fatherhood and our own experience. 
You can grow in your awareness of God as a good father uh, by some very simple things. Uh, Number one, just evaluate yourself. How do you address God in prayer? Do you talk to him as God? Or do you talk to him as father? Jesus taught his disciples to pray this way, our father. And in doing that, those very first two words tell us that we are not alone. we got brothers and sisters. We use that plural possessive, our father. He's our and he is father. We are to address him as such. And as Jesus reminded us, how much more will your heavenly earthly fathers they they you know they do a decent job you know if a, if you ask your father for a loaf of bread will he give you a stone no if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask him so just in prayer talk to god as father knowing that fathers protect and fathers provide at the very least, and they do much more than that. And then, as I mentioned just a moment ago, thank Him. Heavenly Father cares for us in so many ways that we take for granted. Thank God for the many mundane blessings you currently enjoy. And if you have a hard time coming up with them, go live in a third world country for a while and then come back a uh, number of times I've gone to uh, East Africa, I've come back. Thank you, God, for the shower. Thank you, God, for the toilet that is more than just a hole in the ground. Thank you, Lord, for food that I can eat without wondering if I'm going to get sick and die. Thank you, Lord, for... And on and on it goes. You can thank God. I've gotten in the habit of doing this, and it so, so tunes my heart up to appreciate Father... Thank you for the house that I live in. The wind is blowing right now and it is cold outside, but I am not freezing. Thank you for this room. Thank you for this book, the Bible. Thank you for the woman that is asleep in the bed in the other room. I get up very early. Thank you, Lord, for my children and my grandchildren. Thank you for the oatmeal. I'm a, thank you for the raisins that I put in that oatmeal. Thank you for the honey. That I mean, I'm not kidding. This is what I do. And as I do this, it makes me appreciative of the little things. All of those little things, they're things that God the Father does for you. The very next breath that you take. We ought to thank God for these things. I had to train my children to thank their mother for cooking It just doesn't come naturally. Similarly, we have to train ourselves to thank our Heavenly Father for the many blessings that we take for granted. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, If you have not what you desire, you have more than you deserve. And I think it was Newton that said, A proud man complains that he has no more. A humble man wonders That he has so much. Who are you? What do you have? We are presently. At this very moment. Experiencing. The blessing. Of having God. As our father. Adoption is a wonderful privilege. And it is a present. Right now. 
reality. It's also a transforming truth. Thirdly, verse 2, what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There's more to come. Adoption leads to transformation. Your destiny is to be like God, your Father. Your destiny is to be like Him in character, to be like Him in holiness, to be like Him in love. Adoption grants us a certain status as God's children. That's true. But it actually does more than that. It transforms us, it changes us to become like God. Now, some carry this a little too far. There's always going to be a creator-creature distinction. We don't attain divinity. However, we do become partakers of the divine nature. Our destiny is to be godly. We are at this moment, through the things that God brings us through, through the life that he gives us, we are being actually conformed to the image of Christ. But to be godly is our destiny. And we want to be like God. We want to be godly. Actually, if you don't want to be godly, you should question whether you're even a Christian. Now, it's an interesting thing about fathers and sons. Uh, And the same is true, I'm sure, for mothers and daughters. But, you know, I'll have to take my wife's word on that. Sons want to be like their fathers. In the pre-modern world, if your father was a shoemaker, you were a shoemaker. There wasn't a lot of upward mobility. That's just the way it was. Sons want to be like their fathers. That can be both good and bad. I'm uh, in the midst of actually finishing up writing a a book, and uh, I've titled it uh, God, Grandchildren, and Golf. And the first part of it, I'm tracing a little bit of my heritage, uh, going back to my great-grandfather, and my grandfather and my father and myself. So as I've been looking at some of this, I've, I'm seeing that there, there are some similarities. One interesting thing is that uh, we know about my great-grandfather only because we have his muster papers. He was a uh, uh, fought in the Civil War and in many other campaigns. He was actually uh, um, on the artillery line with the 145th uh, of the Erie, uh, Pennsylvania, um, uh, infantry or actually artillery and uh, because we have extensive medical records we've determined that uh, great grandpa Willard was suffering from bleeding hemorrhoids while he was manning the artillery at Pickett's Charge doesn't sound very glorious does it well he I'll tell you he's not the only Boisvert that has suffered from bleeding hemorrhoids so I've noticed a lot of uh, a lot of interesting things in the family line here, but just going back to my father, being like your father. My father drank to excess, as did his father, and as did I, until God intervened with the gospel. My father smoked Chesterfield regulars. 
So did I. My father was a golfer. And I'm a golfer. I have to clarify that. It doesn't mean we played golf. There's a difference between a golfer and someone who plays golf. We were golfers. That means if it's 30 degrees and there's a stiff breeze blowing, you just put on a sweater. I know, it's crazy. My father was a paratrooper. So I actually jumped out of an airplane a few years ago. I said, why would you do that? Are you a thrill seeker? No, my dad was a paratrooper, and I just said one, I said, just made an honest comment one time. I said, I, you know, I'd like to do that someday. And my daughter-in-law picked up on it, and she arranged, bought, you know, a, a skydiving package. And then it was too late. I had to do it. <laughs> so you want to, okay. Well, as Christians, here's the point. As Christians, we have the spiritual DNA of our Heavenly Father. We have the spirit of adoption in us. We want to be like God. We want to be like Him. We want to be godly. We want to know Him. And the exciting fact is that we are actually right now in the process of becoming transformed, conformed to the image of God. He's training us to be like Himself. The very things that you are going through is in order to make you like God, to transform you. We were originally created in the image and likeness of God. But because of the fall, the image has been defaced. Not erased, but defaced. And through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and through this adoptive process, God has saved us and He's continuing a work in us that is going to make us more and more like Christ. And there will be a time in the future, it may not be long from now, when he will appear and when he does, our sanctification will be complete and we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. There's another statement in here that's interesting. It says it's because of this that the world doesn't like you. In the Gospel of John and in John's first letter, he makes a number of statements about the world. He says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Jesus said, as John recorded him saying, if the world hated me, it'll hate you also. The, why, the reason why the world doesn't receive us is because it didn't receive him. Don't try to make friends with the world. It's not going to work. You're different. If you're a Christian, the world is in opposition to God. Now, we go into the world and take the gospel into the world, and God loved the world so much that he gave his son. So we should love the world in that sense, love the people in the world to try to bring them out of the world into the kingdom of God. But this makes pretty clear. If you're a child of God, if you're adopted by him, nah, the world's not going to love you. It's actually going to hate you. It's going to oppose you. So don't waste your time trying to be friends with the world. Please, young people, don't waste your time trying to be cool. It, it's a lot of work and it just doesn't work. It, it doesn't work out. I tried it. It doesn't work. probably didn't know that. I used to be cool. I know it's hard to believe, but it's, it's true. You can ask people from my high school. They thought I was cool. I really was a fool, though. I really was a fool. All right, well, that's, that's enough about number three, a transforming truth. Number four, adoption is also a purifying hope, and this is verse three. Everyone who thus 
hopes in him purifies himself even as he is pure. There's a purifying work that goes on as we are God's children being transformed. The passage seems to build, does it not? The wonderful privilege of being God's child and the present reality and experience of God's fatherhood leads us to great expectations of what we will be, though we can't fathom all that it means at this time. But we do know this, that when we see him, when he appears... We will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And John says that this hope, just having this hope right now, if this is a hope that you have, it has a purifying effect. Well, purifying is a good thing. Purifying effect means that some things that are impure are going to be crowded out. They're going to be burned off. And there's going to be a a wonderful gold and silver that is through testing and trials, purified and made to shine as the glory of God. This hope has a purifying effect. And that desire to want to please God, it's just such a wonderful thing. It's a motivation that comes and that energizes. And it really does make you happy. I mean... Following God in this way, this purifying thing of knowing that you're a child of God and wanting to live for Him, being transformed, it really does make you happy. And and that's really one of the things that we're all after. I I love this statement from John Owen. You know who John Owen was? was? He was probably the greatest of the English Puritan theologians. He's the guy that wrote so much, but he wrote one particular tome on temptation and sin. And, and if you read just that, you get the idea that, that all John Owen thought about or talked about was sin and temptation. And it's just, it, it can be a little wearying. But that's not all he wrote. He wrote some other things, one of which was communion with God. And, and this is what he said, and I love this. I don't know if it will be up here on the screen or not. John Owen wrote, let us then see the Father as full of love to us. Do not see the Father as one who is angry, but as one who is most kind and gentle. Let us see the Father as one who from eternity has always had kind thoughts toward us. It is a complete misunderstanding of the Father that makes us want to run away and hide from Him. The Father loses the company of His people because they are so ignorant of, notice that, ignorant of his love to them. His saints keep thinking only of his terrible majesty, severity, and greatness. And so their hearts are not drawn to him in love. We must learn to think of his everlasting gentleness and compassion. We must remember his kind thoughts which have been from eternity. Let us remember how eager and willing he is to accept us. If we did this, we would not be able to bear one hour's absence from him. Instead, we find it difficult to spend even one hour with him. Let then this be the first thought that we have of the Father, that he is full of eternal love for us. Amen. John Owen. Thank you, John. Do you have hard thoughts about God? That He's a harsh taskmaster? 
expecting much, excusing little, then you're like the elder brother. Remember the elder brother in the story of the prodigal? You misunderstand the heart of your father. When that prodigal returned home after much foolish behavior, he repented, he began his return, hoping only to be allowed to live as a hired servant. But his father, his father was looking for him a long way off. And when he saw him, he ran to him and he showered him with kisses, killed the fatted lamb, let us make merry. That's the heart of the father. Imagine yourself seated on the lap of your heavenly father, looking up into his eyes and saying, Tell me again, Daddy, the story of how I became your little child. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us so much that you sent your Son to die for us. That's the story of how we became your children. It's the greatest love story in the world. You loved us so much that you sent your son. And Jesus, you loved us so much that you willingly gave your life. Holy Spirit, come and minister this wonderful truth of our adoptive status before you. So that everyone in this room and everyone within the sound of my voice might rejoice and wonder and be amazed at the wonderful fact that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.